Good morning, church. It is, oh, what a joy it is to be with you. Um, for a good portion of my life, I've heard a lot about the work that God is doing in and through the church here at Fourth Avenue Church of Christ. We've got friends and family, and the Church of Christ is a small world, so know lots of folks who have come through these doors and are part of this family. And it's a gift. It really is. It's a joy to have the chance to, uh, to spend some time with you this morning, to worship with you this morning. Thanks to Mark and his team for leading us this morning. And to have the chance to share with you a little bit from uh, the Gospel of John here in just a moment. Uh, my name is, is Brent, and I bring greetings to you from uh, the church at Woodmont Hills Church up in Nashville. That's where my wife and I are proud to be members and a part of the work that God's doing there. Um, I also am, uh, I work at Lipscomb University, as was said earlier. Um, I'm married to the wonderful, tremendous Sarah, who is hard at work directing a summer camp right now. And so uh, I got the easy gig. She's dealing with students for the whole week. And uh, I just have to come and share a word with you this morning. Um, but I'm not alone. You can embarrass her a little bit later. I am uh, joined this morning by my sister, Ashley, who just happened to be in town this morning. She's from Memphis, but just happened to be here. And it's such a gift to have her with, uh, with me this morning. So you can pick on her a little bit later on. Uh, I'm going to begin this morning by reading from our, our text, which comes from, from John chapter 12. We're going to look at a couple of characters that John highlights in this story and see what they might have in store for us as we consider what it means for us to follow Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus. So listen in as I read from our text this morning, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given to Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning from John chapter 12. And since we're still getting to know each other, I'm going to ask a really personal question. Do you have any weird, unusual habits I know you do, because we all do, even if we don't really notice them. I have a few unusual habits, many of which have been so lovingly pointed out to me by my wife, Sarah. 
Um, I have a weird habit uh, that I have to eat my meals in very particular ways. I have to eat my meals one food group at a time. So if I'm given a side salad and let's say the meal is like grilled chicken, green beans, and mashed potatoes or something, right? I have to start my meal with the side salad and I have to eat the entire salad before I then move on to the next food group, which would probably be green beans. I would have to eat all the green beans before I would then move on to the mashed potatoes, eat all the mashed potatoes, then eat my grilled chicken. Apparently not everyone does that. Um, but that's how I grew up eating, and so it's just a part of how I exist in the world now. I've done it for so long, I don't even notice that it's strange. Again, Sarah pointed that out to me uh, so lovingly. Um, I have another weird habit. If you do any public speaking, then you know that there's something strange that happens in the five feet between the front row and the stage. You develop these weird ticks on stage that you would never do anywhere else. I have this weird tick whenever I'm on stage. You'll probably see it at some point today. I play with my wedding ring. And uh, it's, it's just this annoying little habit that I can't kick because I don't even think about it anymore. I'm sure at some point today I'll start fiddling with my finger and you will snicker at me because you'll know, I've now shared with you, this is a weird, unusual habit that I have that I can't kick. Uh, last unusual habit. I'm oversharing this morning already. Uh, you know that sidewalks are broken up into segments, right? Divided by these lines. I have to take the same number of steps in every sidewalk segment. So if I take two steps in this sidewalk segment, then I have to take two steps in every sidewalk segment after that. And I will shorten or lengthen my stride to ensure that I take the same number of steps. You're laughing at me. <laughs> because, oh, there's the people who are with me on this one, right? Whether or not those are your weird, unusual habits, I know that we all have unusual habits that we've developed because we do the same thing over and over again and they become just automatic, the way that we live our lives. They sort of become part of who we are, part of our identity, part of our personality. Now, unfortunately, habits work the other way too. Um, how many of you have some bad habits? Some things that you, oh, you sure wish that you could kick. Some things you wish you could stop doing, but they've just become ingrained in who you are and how you operate. I unfortunately have a bad habit of sleeping with my phone next to the bed, which means that when my alarm goes off, it's all too easy just to hit snooze a few times each morning, and then I waste so much time in the morning laying in bed. I have a bad habit that I wish I could kick of being late to things. Luckily, I was on time this morning, but I have this terrible habit of waiting until the last possible second. I've conditioned myself to wait until the last possible second to leave, and so I'm inevitably late to everything. I have this bad habit that I sure wish that I could kick. Maybe you do too. Some habits that you formed over time, that are just part of how you live life now. Now, what's interesting about habits, and, and you probably know this if you've ever tried to form a good habit, right? There are good habits that we can form and cultivate in our life, is that you don't try and form a, a good habit just for the sake of the habit, right? Like habits aren't ends in themselves. You don't form a habit just so you're a person who has a list of habits that you do. My guess is that you've tried to form a good habit because you want to be a certain type of person. That's my contention. Here, here's, here's what I mean. Whenever you have, uh, maybe you've tried to form a, a habit of exercising, running, or, or eating healthy. You, you didn't just build that habit so that you would be a person who has a habit of walking or running. You did that because you want to be a healthier person, right? Or, or maybe you tried to build, it's, it's popular right now as it should be, Maybe you tried to build a habit of, 
of gratitude, of naming the things that you're thankful for on a regular basis. My guess is you do that because you want to be a more grateful person. If you've ever tried to build a habit of, of giving more of your time or your money, of being more generous, it's because you want to be a more generous person. Habits remind us that there is so much power. There's a deep connection between what we do and who we become. In fact, culture acknowledges this right now. You can look at, at bookstores and you'll see book after book after book about the power of habit. What we do is so closely tied to who we become. That's what habits remind us. I had this really uh, unique and powerful experience about a year and a half ago. Our church took an entire afternoon to read through the Gospel of John in one sitting. And um, I've already overshared enough, so uh, I won't over-spiritualize it and say that the whole time I was really glad that I was there for three hours listening to the Gospel of John. There were times where I thought, there, there's probably a better way I could have spent three hours of my weekend. But it was a really powerful, enriching experience because there's something that starts to emerge. These threads and themes that start to, to come to light whenever you sit down and hear an entire gospel read in, in one sitting. And one of the things that I, I realized and experienced as I heard the gospel of John read that afternoon is how often John talks about habits. John talks a lot about the ways that the, the, the things that we do make us become certain types of people. Which makes a lot of sense because John, his gospel, is about discipleship. It's about paying attention to what we do and how it makes us into certain types of people. John's gospel is all about discipleship. In fact, he tells us as much whenever he uh, shares with us the reason that he's writing this gospel in the, in the first place, this purpose statement for writing the gospel. He says, I'm writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And maybe you already know this, but that word believing there isn't just about passive affirmation. It's about active participation. It's about following and imitating and doing certain things in order to become disciples of Jesus and eventually look more and more like Jesus. This believing is a verb, and John is inviting us to believe, to imitate, to follow, to act with intention in order to become Jesus' disciples. So John's gospel is all about discipleship. And one of the ways that he's inviting us into this discipleship is by supplying us with these character stories, these examples of people. And, and especially one of his main purposes is to show us how different people respond to Jesus' invitation on their life. And he'll illustrate them in very particular ways where, where he's inviting us to imitate some of these characters and to not imitate other characters. To intentionally imitate some characters and to actively avoid other characters. Because some of these characters in his story are, are believing Jesus and other characters are not believing Jesus. John's tutoring us in discipleship through example and through story as if he's telling us this is what to do and this is what not to do if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. And today's story, John actually presents us with two characters at the same time and sets them in contrast to each other. And he gives us the choice. Which path will you choose? Which character will you choose to imitate? How will you respond to the invitation 
of Jesus. Take your pick. On the one hand, we have Mary. Mary, maybe you remember Mary. Mary is the sister of Lazarus. Mary is the the hero in this story, as John tells it. But make no mistake, Mary did not get to hero status easily. She's had a really difficult season as we get to this point in the story. Because it wasn't too long ago uh, that Mary had to sit with her brother Lazarus as he took his last breath. Mary had to watch her brother Lazarus take his last breath, even as she knew that his so-called friend Jesus could have saved him. She actually tells Jesus as much whenever she goes and confronts Jesus when Jesus finally arrives to visit Lazarus. And she says, why didn't you save my brother Lazarus? And even then Mary experiences grace and mercy in the arms of Jesus as he embraces her in the midst of her brother's death. And of course she gets to watch this miraculous event that I know we wish we could encounter where where Jesus actually raises her brother Lazarus up from the dead and she gets to embrace him as he walks out of the tomb. Mary's a hero of our story, but it hasn't been an easy story for her. At this moment in the story, uh, Jesus comes to the town where Mary and Lazarus and their sister Martha live. And because they're such good friends, John tells us, uh, they throw a dinner party for Jesus. And it's during this dinner party that, that Mary surprises everyone in the room and will continue to surprise us even today as she gets up in the middle of this meal. She goes over and gets down on her hands and on her feet and she pulls out this expensive bottle of oil, perfume. She begins pouring it all over Jesus' feet and, and rubbing his feet, anointing his feet, and even wiping up the excess oil with her hair. What's surprising about this this story, this action that Mary does, what's surprising isn't that there is someone who is anointing Jesus' feet, washing his feet, even putting oil on his feet. That was actually quite common at the end of a long day walking on dirty and dusty roads. What's uncommon, what's surprising is that Mary didn't leave that job to a servant as would have normally been done. She chooses to get up and do it herself in this act of selfless love and devotion. What's surprising is that she chooses to use the most expensive oil that she has in her possession. What's surprising is that she uses her own hair to wipe up the oil. And I got to tell you that Mary's demonstration of discipleship looks a little bit different than the demonstration of discipleship I feel like I was presented as a kid growing up. Where so much of our consideration about what it means to follow Jesus was about pragmatism and soberness and somberness. And in contrast to all of that, Mary gets up, pours out the most expensive thing she has on the feet of Jesus, uses her own hair to wipe up the oil without consideration for cost, without consideration for how others would perceive her. Mary shows this incalculable demonstration of love and devotion. And I don't know about you, but I am, I'm challenged challenged by Mary's demonstration of discipleship and that's the way that it should be because John is presenting this example of Mary of one way to respond he would say that the correct way the noble way to respond to the invitation that Jesus puts on our life to follow him in discipleship 
But I told you there's, a, there's another character in this story. And it's the other character in this story whose uh, who's, who's story and whose life trajectory has stuck with me and, um, frankly, kind of haunts me. If Mary is the hero of the story, then our other character, Judas, is the villain. He's, he's the, the foil to Mary's actions in this story. And as much as Mary confronts and challenges my perception of discipleship, there's something about the life of Judas that causes me to stop and think and consider and evaluate my life in, I think, some meaningful ways. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at a couple of things that I think John is trying to point us to from the life of Judas. So buckle up, here we go. Two things to notice from Judas's story. Number one... Words cloak character. Words cloak character. The very first thing that Judas says, and he pops onto the scene in our story today, right? You notice this. That perfume is worth a lot of money. And it should have been sold, and the money should have been given to the poor. Maybe a little violent way to enter the story, right? But you got to give Judas a little bit of credit. Maybe, maybe, maybe we say, Judas, maybe there's some merit to what Judas is saying here to remind us of and, and to advocate for the poor. Especially, right, and I don't want us to get lost, hung up on this phrase that's been batted around and debated and argued about over hundreds of years, right? What, is, what does Jesus mean by the poor will always be among you? As if Jesus could dismiss the poor when his whole life was centered around the poor and those who were cast aside and those who were marginalized and left out. That was Jesus' life. So Judas may, maybe isn't wrong to remind us of, to advocate for the poor, but, but isn't there something inside of us that says, maybe Judas isn't wrong, but he sure isn't right. Maybe Judas isn't wrong to remind us of the poor, but he sure isn't right. His, his advocacy for the poor, maybe even his critique of Mary, could have been a good and necessary reminder even for us. Except that John tells us in sort of this side narrator note that Judas couldn't have cared less about the poor. And so his advocacy for the poor is merely cover. It's, it's merely a, a cloak for his true character, for his self-righteousness, and for his greed. Which I can't help but think, you know, hasn't Judas been listening to his teacher the entire time? Because so much of Jesus' ministry and teaching has been a warning to his disciples to watch out for displays of false righteousness. Watch out for false righteousness, false righteousness that's dripping in false humility. False righteousness that cares a whole lot more about words than actions. False righteousness that looks, surely it looks so clean and shiny on the outside, but is dead and dirty on the inside. Jesus has warned his disciples time and time again against using words that cloak selfishness or self-centeredness or self-righteousness. But Judas's words here, John tells us he doesn't care about the poor. So his words are just a, a costume. They're, they're a farce. They're, they're a front. 
a flimsy front for what he truly feels the deepest part of himself. It reminds me of a, of a story that Wendell Berry tells. Maybe you know Wendell Berry. He's a poet and author. He grew up in Kentucky. Uh, but he tells this, this story in his novel, Jaber Crow. Um, Jaber Crow is about uh, a man named Jaber who lives in a small town in Kentucky. He's a barber during the Vietnam War era. And Jaber's barber shop, like a lot of barber shops during that time, wasn't just a place where you would go and get your hair cut. Jaber's Barbershop was kind of the, the town community center where especially the men of the town would go and, and keep up with current events and talk about politics and world events and talk about the war. And they would share their opinions and they all had a lot of opinions, of course. And there's this moment in the story where Jaber is in his barbershop. There are several men from the town gathered there. And there's a man sitting in the chair named Troy. Um, and what you need to know about Troy is that throughout the, the book, throughout the story, Jaber and Troy have this ongoing tension. There's always something bubbling just below the surface between Jaber and Troy. But the men are in this, in this barber shop. They're talking about the war, talking about the war in Vietnam. They're talking about war protesters who oppose the war in Vietnam. And there's this moment where Troy, sitting in the chair, and he speaks up above all the conversation, he says, you know what I think they ought to do? They ought to round up all those blankety-blank war protesters and all those blankety-blank communists and let them start shooting at each other, and whoever wins, it'll all be for the better. And there's kind of this murmur of agreement across the room, the other men gathered in this barbershop, except for Jaber, who sums up the the courage, the audacity to go against the grain a little bit. He opposes Troy's view with just one line. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that harm you. And Troy whips his head around. He says, where did you hear that? And in an epic mic drop moment. Jaber says, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a victory, right? <laughs> In response to this demonstration of, of hatred by Troy, Jaber says, don't you know you, you, need, you need to love your enemies? He feels this sense of satisfaction for just a brief moment until Jaber realizes and he says to himself, it would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except that I did not love Troy. This reminder to Troy to love your enemies could have been a powerful, necessary reminder, except his words didn't carry any weight because Jaber couldn't even love the enemy sitting in the chair in front of him. He didn't love Troy. Judas makes this critique, this, this critique that he confronts Mary's action. And it could have been a really important reminder to advocate for the poor, except his words don't have any weight. Because John tells us that he couldn't have cared less about the poor. He didn't love the poor, he loved himself. One commentator puts it this way, that, that Judas's personal greed 
for material things masquerades as altruism. And, and I wonder, this, this masking, this cloaking, using our words, even if our heart really isn't reflective of those words, I wonder if we can be tempted to do this, to use words to critique and correct, even when our motivation is more selfishness than righteousness. And I just, I just, I just got to say, we, we can say all the right things and still be wrong. Because when our words don't match our hearts, our words become a flimsy, see-through cover for our true heart, for our true character. I'm reminded of this observation that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about the speck and the plank. Maybe you remember this teaching. He says, how can you point out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a huge plank in your own eye? Don't tell your brother to take out the speck until you've examined the plank that's in your own eye, right? I, I've begun to think of this speck and this plank as perhaps coming from the same tree. That, that maybe the reason that I can see the speck in my brother's eye is because it's made of the same substance that's stuck in my own eye, clouding my own vision. And I know it, and I'm ashamed of it. In my own life, I, I feel like I'm pretty quick to notice displays of, of self-service. Because I know that I harbor pride. Maybe we're quick to critique an unwillingness to extend grace because we hate that we harbor hatred. In our story, Judas calls out wastefulness, maybe in part because he himself was greedy and selfish. But his, his words of critique and correction are flimsy. They're just a front for what's really going on inside of him, and it rarely lasts for long. This often happens where self-righteousness and self-seeking always have a way of uncovering our true character. And we discover, at least in this story, pretty quickly, that Judas doesn't really care about the poor. He cares about himself. Number one, words cloak character. Number two, actions create character. Actions create character. Did you notice what John calls Judas? Did you notice how John describes Judas? He calls him a thief. What I want us to notice there is that John doesn't say that Judas stole or that Judas was stealing. He says that Judas was a thief, which means that Judas not only stole, but he stole enough that he became one who steals. He stole enough that he became a thief. That's what I mean. Actions create character. It's a lot like habits. What we do is so closely tied to who we become. One of the things I've been reflecting on recently, and, and admit, I, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine that perhaps Judas never intended to become a thief. I don't know many people who set out to become a thief. Maybe Judas didn't intend to become a thief. He just stole once, 
Ooh, stole again, and stole again. So eventually he became a thief. Again, I, I don't know for sure, but maybe Judas didn't even intend to betray Jesus. He, he just cut corners once and, and then another time and then another time. He, he sought his own self-interest once and then again and then again until eventually what he did is who he became. He not only stole, he became a thief. He not only sought his own self-interest, he became a traitor. What we do is so closely tied to who we become. The reality is that our actions form us into who we are. They form the direction of our lives. Now, maybe you didn't, but, but I grew up driving um, on gravel and dirt roads in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. That's where I'm from originally. Rural Oklahoma, all gravel and dirt roads everywhere. And I learned something pretty early on as I was driving on these dirt and gravel roads that you needed to look out for ruts. You needed to look out for depressions that would form in the road. Because what you learned all too, too quickly driving on these roads is that if you got stuck in a rut, it's nearly impossible to get out of it. It's nearly impossible to get out of the rut and choose a new path. In fact, Alaskan highways used to be all dirt and gravel roads. And there's a legend that there is a sign at the beginning of one of these stretches of highways that read what you see on the screen there. Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 60 miles. <laughs> there were these deep ruts that would form on these Alaskan highways. And this warning at the beginning of the stretch of highway telling people to watch out for the rut that you choose. Because once you are in a rut, it's nearly impossible to get out of it. And I wonder if there's a word for us there, as cheesy as it may be. Choose, choose, choose our rut carefully. Choose the life that we're going to live carefully. Because the actions that we choose now, the decisions that we make now, are setting us on a course, a direction for our life. And once you get in a rut, it is very difficult to get out of that rut. So choose your rut carefully. The reality is that every thought we entertain, every step that we take, every choice that we make, they influence the thoughts that we will make, the steps that we will take, the actions that we will take, the choices we'll make in the future. I've had this, uh, this, this great joy and honor over the last couple of years at Lipscomb to teach a class called engineering ethics. It's a senior level ethics course for engineering students. They're about to graduate and go off and be professional engineers. We're trying to help them think well about, you know, life and making good moral decisions and, and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the best things about the class is that the, the dean of the College of Engineering sits in on the class. He's, he's not assigned the class, he's not on the course load, he's not a teacher in the course. He just cares so deeply about his students and cares so deeply about this subject that he chooses to come and sit in on the class most, most days. This is a man with 39 years of professional experience in aerospace engineering and leadership. He is full of so much wisdom and also kindness and grace. It's amazing. And I will tell you that some of the most powerful and provocative and compelling moments in the class 
Um, they sure haven't come and arrived lectured on some ethical model or theory. <laughs> They've come whenever Dean Elrod speaks up in the middle of class. And sometimes you can even hear like a, a tremor of emotion in his voice as he shares about some of the people that he's known throughout his professional career. People who are good people, people who are moral people. A lot of times they're even Christian people. You know the story. They, they never intended to do anything wrong or do anything harmful or do anything unethical. But, but one action led to another action, led to another action. One decision led to another decision, led to another decision. Until eventually, what they did was who they became. They woke up one morning and they realized that they had become a liar. They had become a cheat. They had become a thief. What they did is, is who they became. The reality is that what we do and think in this moment isn't just about this moment. It influences what we will do and what we will think and who we will be tomorrow and the next day. Repeated thoughts and repeated actions kind of form ruts in our lives. And once you get in a rut, it's terribly difficult to choose another path. Those ruts make us who we are which means that the invitation for us in light of the story of Judas is to realize that what we do matters. That what you do matters. What you do matters. The, the way you spend your time matters. The way you spend your energy matters. The way you spend your resources matters. The way you treat your clients, your employees, the way you treat your family and friends, the way you treat your spouse, it matters. The way you post on social media, the way you engage media, the way you argue and disagree, it matters. It matters because what we do is who we become. Now, I'll just warn you, the problem is that we live in a world and in a society that wants to lull us to sleep. And it's not just a, like a cultural society. There's, there's a bit of a church culture here as well that, that we've bought into this picture of Christianity that says you can do whatever you want to do Monday through Saturday and show up and go through the motions on Sunday and still be a good Christian. Just think about, oh, how much time we spend arguing about what worship should look like on Sunday and not paying nearly enough attention to how we worship throughout the week is forming us into certain people. What we do matters. That's what John wants to remind us of. That what we do is who we become. The story of Judas reminds us that what we do is who we become. That's the negative example. But of course, Scripture is full of all these stories of people who choose to follow Jesus, and who become disciples of Jesus, people who even reflect the life of Jesus. If we want to become a certain type of person, we've got to train and act and do in certain ways, and that takes time, and it takes intention, and that church is discipleship. That's discipleship. That's what it means to follow Jesus, which is why I love the way that Eugene Peterson 
describes discipleship. He says that it's it's a, a long obedience in the same direction. So like ruts on a path, <laughs> a long obedience in the same direction, obeying, believing, imitating, following Jesus. Because we know that it's by following Jesus, by imitating Mary, with this selfless act of love and devotion, by imitating Jesus, who gave his life in the ultimate act of selfless love and devotion. It's by following Jesus that we experience the very best life in his name. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.